This is Yudaha Kohen and Lizzie Oziel, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. First of all, we'd like to wish our listeners a Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah Sameach. We're in two different locations. Lizzie's in Yushalayim, in Jerusalem. I'm here in the Gofna Hills, actually the Maccabean partisan camp for the first few years of the revolt. Uh, until the conquest of Jerusalem, until the liberation of Jerusalem that we celebrate on Hanukkah. Um, Lizzie, how's your Hanukkah going? Hanukkah's great. There's nothing I love more than walking through the streets of Jerusalem and seeing everyone's Hanukkiyot out and lit and just this general atmosphere of celebration. It's so beautiful. Um, is this your first Hanukkah in Jerusalem? Yes, it actually is. This uh-huh. is the first time I've ever been in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. Wow. So that must be a special experience. It really is. It really is. I don't think I've ever been fully able to connect with how special of a holiday Hanukkah really is until I've experienced it here in Israel. It's something different. I mean, in general, in the diaspora, it was a holiday that I connected to very much growing up. It was just so nice to see everybody being visibly Jewish and walking past houses and this display of Jewish resistance that's been going on for so long. But to experience it in Israel, especially under the state of Israel, where we, you know, have our sovereignty once again, is just something otherworldly. It's an experience I can't describe. Right. I definitely, you know, I I spent a number of Hanukkahs in Jerusalem, uh, different parts of Jerusalem, Malazetim, Kiyar Moshe, and it was always very special. But to live here, you know, I'm I'm actually on the mountain where Matityahu died. Um, you know, I can look down into the valley where Yudah Maccabee was killed. We have the caves, the olive presses, the wine presses, the guard towers. Like this is where the Maccabeem transformed a small group of teachers and farmers and tanners into a guerrilla army. And so to live here uh, and to light the Hanukkah here on this mountain definitely makes me feel like a character in a later chapter of the same story that they were characters in. Right. I think since joining Vision, this is the first Hanukkah, you know, I think I've experienced since I've really deeply internalized a lot of the ideas that we talk about here. And to experience this holiday fully knowing what it means, what it meant to have these small group of people fight this gigantic army just using the knowledge of the landscape of our land and in defiance of these people who were coming in basically putting us under foreign rule and refusing to allow us to practice our culture and sustaining that war for 26 years against this gigantic army being so you know outnumbered so out resourced and yet still prevailing is something that has really taken the meaning of this holiday to the next level for me to to really understand the experience of the people who who actually fought that war it's real. Like the, the bottom line is it's real. And I think that really is a lot of what we do with the vision movement. We make it real. Like we make the story of the Jewish people real because it is a real story. And I think part of the phenomenon of it becoming like a religion for a lot of people in exile is that it kind of felt like, you know, a lot of the a lot of our history almost became relegated to the realm of like fairy tale or mythology. And when you're actually like in the place where such and such story happened right or at the grave of of this hero of our history or whatever it becomes a very real story and i think that's a lot of what you know we try to do with the vision movement is we work to make the story of the jewish people the reality that jews are living psychologically right so other than hanukkah this has been a very interesting week because 
this article surfaced that, you know, was mainly mentioning Rudy and the work that he's doing regarding the Black Hebrew Israelites and, and just discussing him as a figure. But there was a point in which... Rudy Rockman, yes. Um, but there was a point in which, you know, in the article, the author points to you, actually, and, and says that a lot of Rudy's ideas are coming from you. And he goes on to describe a lot of what we were saying in a way that I don't really feel is very representative of what we say. Um, and then he quickly moves on. But I wanted to take this opportunity to actually go in depth with you and ask you some questions just to clarify for a lot of our listeners and for people who don't really know us what we're actually about, what we're actually saying, because we use a lot of language that I think for people who are familiar with these ideas is comfortable to use. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, ring anyone the wrong way. But for a lot of other people listening into this conversation, this internal conversation that we're having, you know, a lot of the terms that we throw around can sound very confusing. And so I just wanted to, you know, dive into some of these things and, and get your clarification on them. Sure. But before we do that, I just want to point out that I think it's very clear that the author, Samuel Hyde, uh, he's been a guest on the show before, by the way, uh, before you came on. Uh, if anybody wants to check out that episode, maybe we could link to it in the show notes. But he clearly has very deep disagreements with a lot of the things that I and other people in the movement say. But I think for the most part, he makes an effort to be professional in his attacks. I didn't feel like it was mean-spirited what he wrote. Uh, there are a couple things in there that I think are just blatantly not true. You know, when it came to me, um, my positions, for example, he's he's done this twice already. He's put post-democratic in quotes as if that's something I said at some point. I don't think I've ever said those words, post-democratic. In fact, I've, I've been very clear about my support for democracy, not just democracy, but participatory democracy, which in my opinion is far more democratic than representative democracy. And, and when I say democratic, I mean it empowers people. The goal of democracy, as far as I'm concerned, is to empower people to be able to influence the structures they live under. So anything that empowers people more in any given society, like empowers the people of that society, is to me democratic. So I've never talked about anything. I, I've I've definitely spoken about post-capitalist, you know, moving into a post-capitalist world. I think Israel did come back to life after 2000 years to help lead humanity into a post-capitalist world. I've never said post-democratic and twice he's put that in quotes. I've brought that to his attention. He says, I said that on the podcast we did together that we can put in the show notes. If listeners want to check that out, they'll hear whether I said it or not. Uh, maybe I should listen again, but I'm pretty sure I didn't say it because I've never thought it. And also there was something in there about me expressing passionate support for the Otsma Yudit party uh, of Itamar Ben-Gvir. Now, I've never expressed passionate support for the Otsma Yudit party. I'm not a supporter of Itamar Ben-Gvir. Uh, I have an analysis of who he is and what role he has to play in Israel's national development. Um, but anyway, I don't support them. There's no evidence that I supported them except for this ridiculous hit piece on me that came out in the Daily Beast a couple of years ago, where the author claimed that I expressed passionate support or spoke passionately about Otsma Yudit. I don't know what he's talking about. It's never been my party. So a lot to unpack there. I definitely first want to start with the issue of democracy. Um, when we talk about democracy, 
a lot of people have this boxed in idea of what democracy is supposed to look like based on like a representative system. You know, you vote for someone once every four years or so, maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little less, and they go and they basically fight for your interests. And I think at Vision, we tend to try to imagine democracy in different ways that might actually empower people living under the structures of power that they're living under to have a genuine and true say in them. And on a regular basis, not just once in a while where you can vote for someone and they may represent your position properly, they may not. You have to kind of put up with a lot of, you know, positions you don't like in order to support positions you do like. And for me personally, I don't really find that an effective way to be a participant in the society that you live in. It's very limiting in what you're able to influence above you. And so to reimagine that and to discuss new ways in which we can actually empower the people to really have a say in what goes on in their lives, um, I think that's when we speak about different versions of democracy, that's the type of democracy that we are speaking of. So there is, you know, I guess a block to being able to understand this if you're imagining democracy in this simple way of representative democracy. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think part of the problem is that in Israeli society, the term democracy is often used as a synonym for westernization. You know, like it's often kind of put against the question of a Jewish state. Like you have a Jewish state and a democratic state and Israel has to like balance those values. And I think that, you know, if we're using democracy as a synonym for westernization, we're not empowering people because the westernized sectors of Israeli society are really a an increasingly shrinking elite that doesn't have as many kids as some of the other sectors, for the most part, limits itself to North Tel Aviv, you know, might have its hand on a lot of the cultural institutions, especially the Supreme Court and academia. But for the most part, the oversized influence of a elite minority is not democratic. And I think there's also a concern that as Israeli society shifts, meaning as the, the more tribalist, traditional nationalist forces in Israeli society are becoming stronger and greater. And, you know, we saw that in the results of our most recent election here, that they're going to impose their will, their way of life, their worldview on the rest of the country. And that's a, a legitimate concern, by the way, in any democratic society, this concern of like tyranny of the majority, that the minority groups could potentially lose their rights or suffer one way or another as a result of now being the minority and not the majority. And again, this concern is being expressed by people who have been the majority until now, and for the most part have uh, forced their ideological worldview on the whole country, you know, the worldview of Western liberalism, which is a worldview, but it's not the worldview. And I'm not sure that all of Israeli society has to function within that paradigm. And clearly it no longer is. Right. And I think that fear that, you know, Israel could potentially head in a direction where we become somewhat like a Jewish Iran. You know, that's a legitimate fear. And I think conversations like the ones that we're having at Vision are some of the most important steps that we can take as a people to actually avoid that situation. Because at the end of the day, it does seem that the trends in Israeli society 
are indicating that people want to have more Jewishness incorporated into the structures of this country. And so if we're going to find a way to do that, that's really unique to us, uniquely suited to our needs and doesn't create a situation where you have something like a Jewish Iran, where you have this tyrannical majority basically telling the rest of the country how to live, how to be in a very oppressive manner, but actually kind of acknowledges the reality of the situation that the Jewish people have many multitudes contained within us. We have many different people who express many different identities. This is where Vision likes to discuss, you know, the political spectrum in terms of the identities of the tribes. But those tribal identities are very deeply ingrained in our society. And so we actually need to develop a system where we're not allowing one majority to rule over the other based on electing representatives who kind of represent them, but not really. And there's a lot of infighting in between them as a result of these things, but actually empowers people to, you know, live in a way that feels right for them whilst making space for people who would like to live a little bit differently in their own way and area. Right. So this is actually a country where I think participatory democracy could work, meaning this notion of representative democracy, like what we see in the United States, is essentially a lie. Because even though people vote on election day, the candidates they're voting for are far more beholden to the corporations and lobbyists who fund their campaigns than the voters who vote for them. So in the end of the day, I would say that the United States is not a democracy as much as it's a corporatocracy, meaning the billionaires and corporations essentially own the politicians. And I don't know if there's I don't know if there's an alternative under capitalism, but here in Israel, in a, in a small country where people, for the most part, feel part of their tribe, you know, there are different tribes that make up Israeli society, but people who are part of each tribe definitely feel part of that group in most cases. I think here, participatory democracy could really work where you have people in a community getting together one night a week, discussing every major and minor issue that affects them, affects the country, uh, and then sends a representative to a larger meeting uh, comprised of representatives from several communities who already had that initial meeting and so on and so forth until somebody becomes a Knesset member and a, a Knesset member who can be recalled any week, meaning you no longer have people just like voting for the guy who had the best commercials or the party who had the best bus ads or whatever, but now you're suddenly, you suddenly have a critical mass of the population directly involved in discussing the major issues of the day and formulating policy. And obviously that leads to a much more politically educated population uh, and you significantly decrease the ability of politicians to do what they want at the expense of their publics, you know, to, to keep the public in the dark. So on this subject, I'd actually love for us to go into a little bit why, why this idea of participatory democracy ties into, you know, the vision that we have for a one state solution that actually incorporates Palestinians into it. I think that's another idea that we have that confuses or, you know, can mislead a lot of other people because the way it sounds is that under a one state solution with a democracy, you'd kind of have to have Palestinians being second class citizens denied certain rights. But I think the idea of a participatory democracy, the execution of it here, it ties into, you know, how we can incorporate Palestinians into this. So I'd love for you to clarify a little bit on that subject. I think you just said it. Uh, basically, if everyone, Jews and Palestinians, have equal access to 
the political process. And it's a system, by the way, I do think participatory democracy, in addition to being more democratic, more empowering of people than representative democracy, it's also a uniquely Jewish form of democracy that we had once upon a time reflected in the captain of tens model, right? Captain of tens, captain of hundreds, captain of thousands, etc. That's something that we did once upon a time. In fact, it says in the Gemara that the Anshe Knesset Agdola, the men of the Great Assembly, um, which our Knesset is essentially based on, it's like 120 members, etc. Like that's how they were selected. Um, and they really represented the people. That, that's what we want. We want the decision makers, the people who are able to make policy to represent their publics, to represent the people of the country. A system like participatory democracy that is inclusive of Palestinians, it's still a uniquely Jewish system, but in terms of the rights and the access that people have, there's equality. Um, and that's, again, that's a great example of making the Jewish character of the state deeper and softer rather than the hard, shallow Jewish character that the state of Israel has right now. And I think that's a very, very fundamental thing to understand when trying to understand what vision movement is about and what we're pushing for. Um, because at the end of the day, we really do view this as trying to empower the people of Israel to operate at our highest level. And that actually means being able to influence the structures that we live in and also means trying to find solutions to that that are actually based in our tradition, that we're not reaching to foreign concepts or theories or systems to solve our problems, but we're actually looking within what's already contained within us to find the best solutions to help us go forward. And one thing that I think we should be very clear about that's not always understood is that Vision is not a political organization. Vision is an educational movement. You know, Vision is an intellectual space where we're constantly formulating ideas for what Jewish liberation looks like now in the wake of Zionism, right? Zionism was very successful. It's over. The Jewish people need a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement. And that requires us to formulate new ideas. And that's a lot of what happens at Vision. People are really figuring out for ourselves what Jewish liberation looks like now, what I can do to be a character in the story of advancing Jewish history. And a lot of people take that in different directions. There are people who are connected to Vision who've decided that the most important thing for us to do right now is to get free of the United States, to completely break free of American influence, to not take American money, not take American weapons, to be an independent country that's able to um, chart our own course and diversify our foreign policy portfolio. Um, there are people coming out of vision who believe that the most important thing for us to do right now is go to Africa and uh, find lost Jewish tribes. There are people coming out of vision who believe the most important thing for us to do right now is to reconcile with the Palestinians and find a way to really make peace in this land. There are people coming out of vision who believe that the most important thing for us to do is to decolonize Jewish identity, right? There are a lot of different conclusions that people reach, but the idea, the, the main idea, what makes vision, uh, I think, an important intellectual space is that we're creating leadership that might end up resulting in several rival Jewish liberation tendencies, just like Zionism had several rival tendencies. You had uh, labor Zionism and revisionist Zionism and general Zionism 
and cultural Zionism and religious Zionism. And these were all, in many cases, these were all in conflict with one another. But the friction between them really propelled our people forward. And I think right now, you know, just due to the fact that Zionism as an ideology no longer has the fuel to drive us forward, no longer has answers, it doesn't have answers for the challenges confronting our people right now, like we need something new. And I think a lot of these attacks, by the way, like, you know, Samuel Hyde and a lot of his friends, they are what I would call neo-Zionists. They are people who are trying to apply the philosophies of the Zionist leadership to our current reality. And I'm not sure that that's going to get us anywhere. I just don't think that Herzl or Akhara Am or Jabotinsky have anything really meaningful or helpful to say about this generation. I think they were dealing with the problems of the Jewish people at a very specific time and place. And they came up with some great ideas that helped, you know, move our people forward. And, and really, Zionism completely changed the situation of the Jewish people. It revolutionized our reality. We are now living free, independent in our land with an army that is able to defend us from our enemies, with an economy that's relatively healthy when you look at the world today. And we're able to develop our own culture and identity and, and start to rebuild our civilization here. Like Zionism created the conditions for that, but it only created the conditions for that. Now we have to do the actual work. Like Zionism created the vessel. Now we have to fill it with content. So that material liberation that Zionism participated in ushering in needs to be supplemented by real deep ideological liberation, like spiritual liberation, like identity liberation, because the material liberation doesn't help if we're still mentally enslaved. So we need mental liberation at this point. One of my favorite things about the vision movement is that when I participate in events or when I get into discussions with people in the movement, I often find myself, you know, disagreeing with people in a really healthy kind of way. And I think one of the things that the Jewish people have failed to do up until this point is actually learn how to embrace our disagreements and use those differences between us to propel us forward. It's very important that, you know, we're not all exactly the same. We don't all exactly think the same way. We don't come to the same conclusions. But what's so important about what Vision is doing is that it's giving people a different framework in which to think, in which to come to these disagreements. Um, because I think like you just said about Zionism, the resources that it has to offer for this generation, for the challenges that we're facing now, are very limited, if any. And we really do need to adopt a new frame of mind if we're going to actually be successful in actualizing our potential as a people and taking a path that's good and productive and intentional and not reactive um, and not one that's, you know, very centered on a very specific mentality that I think belongs to the past and not the future. A lot to do with like our conceptions of power and how traditionally for almost 2000 years we've viewed ourselves as the underdog, the people who need protecting, but I think we're in a different situation at this point in time. And the young generation does need to be aware of this. We do need to assess the facts on the ground, how they actually look and gather the right tools in order to prepare us to confront these challenges. And I really do think that's what the vision movement has to offer people. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that uh, it's a new way of thinking and it's an important way of thinking. I think a lot of what we do is we, we apply a lot of post-colonial tools 
to Jewish identity and Jewish history. And that's relatively new. I don't know if anybody's really done that before. And I think there's a lot of mischaracterizations out there. Partially, like to be fair, it, it's not 100% the fault of our detractors. I mean, there are people out there who don't really understand this discourse so well, but like the sound bites. Like there are a lot of social media personalities who like to, you know, use words like indigenous and decolonize in relation to Jewish issues without having any knowledge behind that, without being able to really like break down what that's about, what it means or, or where it can lead us. And I think it becomes a little bit caricaturish and often uh, a lot of our detractors um, become our detractors because they see and hear these like social media personalities using this terminology wrong and then kind of like superimposing those ideas onto us. I mean, that seems to be happening quite a bit. I do think you're right about that. I definitely think that the best resource to learn more about our ideas is on our platforms. If people want to learn them in depth, specifically when we talk about things like indigeneity and decolonization, you know, these words are very true for us, but they're also very heavy words. They have a lot of implications that can't always be reduced to small sound bites and 30 second clips on Instagram. And I know that's a very popular way to disseminate information nowadays, but I do think some things require a little bit more complex learning. And so, a little bit more of attention and so i definitely think that if people are interested in learning more about what we're about that they should really utilize the resources that we put out there and you know reach out to us we're available online we're around and we love to talk about these ideas that's true we even have a magazine like you want to check out our ideas you know in addition to this podcast you can go to our magazine visionmag.org want to contact us you go to visionmag.org and click contact we'll get the email and if you like our ideas and you want to support them, then you can click donate because projects like this podcast and the magazine are really 100% funded by those who like the work we're doing and want to see it succeed. So we want that to continue. So of course, we encourage all those who are not trying to tear us down, who actually want to help build us up and amplify our voice to either donate to the movement financially or just like our content share our content, you know, share this podcast with a friend or any of the other podcasts we've done on political issues, on Torah, on whatever. But you could definitely participate even if you're not here in Israel. And if you want to start conversations in your college campus, in your community, at your synagogue, at your JCC, like we can help you start promoting these conversations that we believe need to be happening across the Jewish world right now. Right. And, you know, I got to say from a, on a personal note, I had been pretty active on social media, speaking about Jewish identity and anti-Semitism for quite a large portion of my high school years and after. And it wasn't until I really found the vision movement. I heard a lot of the ideas briefly online and I was impressed, but it wasn't until I found the vision movement and actually started to really deeply engage that all of the work that I had been pursuing to try to do, to try to help and change the Jewish people. This was the absolute best outlet for that out of all of the options that were out there. And that's one of the reasons I decided to join and really become an active participant in what you're doing here. Because I really do think that what we've got going on here, this intellectual space, the framework in which we have discussions and the ideas we throw around are really the right way for us to 
accomplish what we want to accomplish as a Jewish people in this day and age. And so people should definitely, if you feel this too, I think this is a great platform to put support behind, or at the very least remain open-minded to continuing to hear our ideas and engage with our educational content. Right. And in terms of questions like, oh, who does the vision movement support in the elections and all that? You know, there are a lot of people at Vision who voted for a lot of different parties. Uh, again, this isn't a political organization. I think we're perceived because of, look, let's be honest, any intelligent person right now, at this moment in time, any intelligent Jew who is going to really unpack Jewish identity in a real way, in a scientific way, in a real way, in a way that really like tries to understand like who we are, what we've been through, what our ancestors wanted, where we are now in that story, what's left to achieve, etc. Anybody who really does that work is not going to support a two-state solution, is not going to support giving up the cradle of Jewish civilization. They're not going to support giving up the West Bank. So maybe because people who go through vision programs are, are like in touch enough with their own identity and have undergone like a real political education, they're not going to support a two-state solution. So yeah, it's true. Like uh, most of our people who are like out there posting on social media are opponents of the two-state paradigm, but it's not like we're a branch of some political party or whatever. And the truth is there's no political party that I feel like I could, at least no political party that's able to make it into Knesset that I feel like I can wholeheartedly support. But I definitely do see sparks of truth being expressed by all the political parties. And of course, I personally can't bring myself to vote for any party that would want to give up parts of our homeland. Right. And I think with Envision, there are so we don't have a unified political stance on anything. There are so many like there's a big diversity of political opinions amongst people that are in our movement. And I think that's really, really healthy. But we all do share similar values and the way in which we come out with assessments on how a certain issue needs to be attacked or approached in terms of policy, you know, we might come up with different answers on that. And that's good. That shows that we have a diverse bunch of minds tackling the same kinds of issues. But I, I do think that what you're saying about, you know, both Jewish identity and then on the other hand, um, the issue of the Palestinians, because I do feel for a lot of people within our movement, myself included, I, I got here to the point that I am in my life initially because I had really never felt that it was appropriate for us to give up like Judea and Samaria. But at a certain point, I also started to realize that there was truth behind what Palestinians were saying that they were experiencing. And, you know, for a brief stint there, I myself was a Jew stater because that seemed like the only viable option going forward. But I think what Vision gave me is the ability to envision not having to betray my own identity while also pursuing justice for everyone who lives in our land, which I do think is very important to many of our members. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, I know that it's Hanukkah. You're busy. I'm busy. My kids are coming home from school, so I'm going to have to sign off here. But uh, I want to wish you and all our listeners a Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah Sameach. This is Yudaha Kohen. And Lizzie Ozial. Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. And you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Anyone interested in checking out the show notes where you can find that podcast that I previously did with Samuel Hyde. Um, it's quite long, but it's interesting. Uh, you can go to the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage eight nine. Awesome.